This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalifa. We were just talking about recessions, you know, and, and funny enough, you know what's interesting about, about this pandemic is I'm sure you've heard, uh, some people refer to it as a, as a recession, some don't, some see it as a different, like a, a, a very different impact that it's had versus what, you know, some folks saw in, in 08, as an example, in terms of what pockets it actually hit. Maybe we can start with that. I know, I know, you know, we were talking a bit before we started recording, but what has this pandemic taught you that was a bit different than what you experienced being in kind of the, the career field or the corporate world uh, in 08? Uh, I think I think you're right. You know, there, it's a recession in a lot of senses. But if you look at the stock market, we're, we're recording this August 28th, 2020. Uh, you know, the Dow and the S&P are near at all time highs. So depending on who you ask, there's a recession. And, uh, and if you ask some folks on Main Street or small business owners, you might get a different you might get a different answer. folks in the airline industry. So um, I was in the staffing and recruiting space in 08 and 09. And that that was a monster. I mean, unemployment was at an all time high. And then over the course of maybe six to nine months, uh, reached 10%, 11%, 12%, depending on the state that you were in. So that, that was a that was a massive situation that had a lot of impact on me. Personally, I'm 36. Now I was uh, kind of a young buck uh, in a professional sense when when that recession hit. Uh, th- this one's a little bit different because now you're going into a situation where unemployment was historically at an all-time low, 3% nationally. And then not six months, nine months, 12 months, 18 months, but literally overnight, you go from low unemployment to the highest unemployment, Great Depression levels uh, in a lot of sectors and worse than Great, uh, great Depression levels in some sectors. So I think right. it's having a major impact depending on how you uh, were hit by this. I think there's a lot of people that are in financial hardship, um, adverse financial situations. It's affecting their mental health. Obviously, there's a health scare uh, associated with this. Um, I was just talking to my team. We've, we've been 100% remote ever since mm-hmm. I started the business years ago. Uh, but everybody in the U.S. that's a white-collar uh, occupation is working from home right now. School's back in session, and people are having a really, really, really hard time with that. And that's going to trickle into how business operates. It's going to trickle into consumer spending. All this stuff is. But you're right. The stock market uh, is not telling the recessionary story. That's what's weird about stimulus it. or if there's inflation. Yeah. You know, um, I'm trying to figure it out myself, but um, that there's a lot of similarities to 10 years ago, no doubt. Mm. How do you stay level-headed, man? Like what you're talking about, you know, the whole workforce was just kind of an interesting concept of, of working remote even before this pandemic. So in, in many cases, you guys were more prepared than, than I would say other firms who, who might have been a bit behind on that remote kind of digital frontier. But when you're talking to your team, what what notes of assurance are you telling them as a CEO, as a leader of, of you know, a startup that you're actually running in the trenches as well? So I was 24 years old in 2008, um, you know, less than a year into a sales career when the last recession hit. And it's like the hardest know, time to be there. <laughs> I was so, you know, man, I was so excited. I thought I was going to have a good year. Uh, I had all these goals for myself. And then like the bottom came out of the market. And customers weren't buying what I was selling. I had family members get laid off. I had friends got laid off. Uh, what were you I selling? In, uh, I was at a staffing company. So I was selling recruiting services like I am now, um, which not a lot of people were hiring back then. 
And I had friends that like, you know, moved to the city for the first time ever, and then had to go back and live with their parents. It was just a very, very dark time. And when, when you're in it, you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, especially if it's the first time you're going through adversity like that. You, you can't look through what's happening and look objectively, uh, even if the history books are saying, you know, recessions are over in six to 18 months, depending on how deep, it's, how deep it gets. And I remember uh, feeling like my back was up against the wall and I really, really had to fight through that. Um, but just like anything else, over time, you get through it. The economy picks back up. Customers start buying a little bit more. Um, so going into this recession, I, I almost was battle tested 10 years ago. And I, I very much enjoyed the 10-year bull market that we had as a business professional. Uh, as an investor, I enjoyed the 10-year bull market. But it, it, those things don't last forever. So right. when this one hit, um, it hit a little bit more sh- uh, sharply. Uh, as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, buck stops with me now, which wasn't the case 10 years ago. Um you, you really have to look objectively and you have a responsibility to employees to make sure that you're making the right decisions through this. So I, I, I needed to uh, never get too low emotionally and stay right in the middle and even keeled and make sure I was not making long-term decisions for myself, the team, the business uh, based on emotion. Because 10 years ago, I could look back and say, well, hey, this is going to be a lot better in six months. And 12 months later, we're going to get through it. So I know that if I work hard, the team works hard, you know, we, we make uh, we, we make as best of decisions that we can, given the information that we have, we're going to get we're going to get this through this thing. And we're in the recruiting space and we're talking to a lot of uh, candidates that just got laid off through this thing, really through no fault of their own. Right. Like try, you know, grappling that emotionally you know, how upset these people are and how this is affecting them financially. And I would tell them the same thing. You know, I'm already starting to see it pick up. Mm-hmm. Things are picking back up. Keep doing what you're doing. Network, get out there. Two years ago, you're going to look back and you're going to be a battle-tested uh, individual that went through some adversity and you're going to be coming out stronger on the other side of this thing. And that's how I look at it as a business owner. And that's what I'm telling my team. It's so true. It's so true. Uh, and you know, what's funny too, is like, when you're talking about that mental health aspect, I think it's, it's even more important uh, selling recruiting, because I think the, the, the core asset of, of Lucas James, right, is really the people, right? It's kind of the knowledge and, and the services and the value you bring to your clients. And I think having everybody at like a, a level headed playing field, you know, where they're also individually taking care of their own self, let alone, you know, when talking to someone who's probably crushed because of the market, or, you know, they feel despaired them, you know, just keeping their energy high is, is even more uh, crucial in that, in that space. So it's kind of an interesting dilemma, right, to run through. For, for sure. And I think I've seen, you know, we, we run in similar circles. I talk to business owners of course, small and large companies all day and C-level leaders of small and large companies all day. And there, there's definitely a spectrum in how folks are, are managing through this. And I think on one side, you have the folks that... Um, let the emotions get the best of them, you know, and sh- short-term freakouts that are affecting jobs, that are affecting people, that are scaring a lot of people, that um, are, 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 are impacting the emotions of their workforce on a day-to-day basis, maybe more so than they need to. On the other side, you have individuals that are painting a very rosy picture when underneath the hood, 
There's no substance. Picture doesn't look very rosy. And people need to know, and they don't want to be blindsided a couple months down the road if tough decisions need to be made. And then on the farther end of the spectrum, I think, you know, what really the, the path that I, I think I'd like to take is you just got to be open and honest with your team. Like the team knows we're in, in the recruiting industry in a pandemic where like literally every company is questioning uh, their current hiring needs and what their like midterm hiring needs need to look like. Like we're going to get affected by this. And it's okay. It happens during recessions right. and, you know, we're prepared and we can, we got a couple levers that we can pull to make sure that we get through this, but I need the team to lock arms and we're going to do this together. And I think, you know, I think that transparency goes a long way with team members and go, okay, we got nine months to roll and we're going to lock arms and we're going to do this together. And then in nine months, we might have another conversation or six months or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But I think there's, there's a lack of transparency with, with some leaders, it's causing a lot of angst and tension and it's showing up on Twitter. It's showing up in Glassdoor reviews and you can kind of see it out there in conversations, no doubt. Yeah. I, I love the way you put it though. It's kind of like, let's lock arms. And, and to your point, like still having that long-term vision, but just taking it kind of a, a step at a time. You know, when you say, listen, we have the first six, nine months ahead of us, let's just get cracking through that. You know, I, I talked to an ultra marathon uh, runner, uh, Dean Carzanis, and he runs like 250 kilometers, like these ultras. And, and that was my question to him. I'm like, dude, how do you, when, when you first lace up, right, and you start pacing at like the first five minutes, how do you keep your mind from going insane thinking of the, you know, the, the 250 kilometer feet you have to do? He's like, George, just one foot at a time. So I, I feel like that's kind of solid advice right now and, and something you're alluding to. Um, yeah. And, and just wanted to ask, and I think a lot of people listening to this would, would find this a value, I, I hope. Let's take the example of the person who, you know, walks into to Lucas James sitting in front of you right now. If you were in their shoes and they just lost their job, what would be the top three or four things you as Tim Shum would do moving forward? There's, there's a few things that I tell people, and I'm, I'm having a lot of those conversations right now, and a lot of team members are having those conversations, mm-hmm. the same conversation right now. Uh, the first thing is take a step back and really evaluate what you want to do because there, this potentially could be an opportunity for five years from now, you look back and it could have been the best thing that ever happened to you because you really, maybe you weren't in the best job with the best company, with the best leader that you wanted to before all this. Um, Unfortunately, COVID happens, you get laid off, but you have this opportunity really write down. What are the things that are important to you? It could be commute time, could be time with family, could be a different industry, could be a different occupation altogether. So write down those things. Then um, I think a lot of people emotionally put it in their head that, hey, I'm going to find something else in four to six weeks. Hmm. Now that very well could happen. Okay. But you cannot have a false sense of reality of maybe the timetables, because I think emotionally and mental health wise, if you have false expectations, you potentially might be letting yourself down. Hey, you know, I'm going to find something in two weeks from now. I'm going to find something in three weeks from now, even in a pre COVID great economy, the job search takes at least a couple months, right? So maybe add a couple months just so you don't um, let yourself down of finding that opportunity that you're looking for. And then financially, I think you need to reverse engineer that back and say, okay, maybe instead of being out of work for 
X, I'm going to be out of work for Y. And I think, you know, going into every week and going into every day with that mentality is going to help out. Mm. Tactically, I think why you asked the question, you have to be networking. There are so many job applications going out there. If a company puts up a job posting, they're getting flooded with 10, 15, 20x the amount of applicants that they were before all this. And recruiters is one of the occupations that got laid off the most through this corporate recruiting or furloughed like internal. So, yeah. I mean the, the internal HR function, internal HR functions. So yeah. they're, they're yeah. shorthanded and they're getting more on their plate um, le- leading into, you know, we have a solution for that, but um, they have more on their plate right now. So the best thing that you could do for yourself is almost treat this as a sales job. You know, you need to prospect, do some research, target 15, 20, 30 companies uh, that you want to, work for, whether they have a job opening or not. Research who that hiring manager is going to be. Go on LinkedIn, figure out who that, you know, who that person is or who those people are, who those three or four individuals that can influence the decision of you getting hired at that company. Write those people down. Now you have a list of maybe 80 to 120 people. Reach out to those individuals one by one by one by one by one on LinkedIn, connect with them, grab their email address, follow up with them that way. And then just like I tell my sales team or any salesperson out there, you can't just do it once. Wait a week, follow up with them again with a personal message. Mm-hmm. Give them value drivers on why you think they're a good, you're a good fit for that and what you can bring to that organization. Follow up with them again, two, three, four times. You're going to get that response because you're going to differentiate yourself from others. And then when it's time to make that hiring decision, who do you think they're going to go with? The thousands of applicants, the, the, the go-getter that's really showing that they want to be part of my organization and they're showing that they're persistent and every message that they sent is super professional, so on and so forth. Yeah, like it's, it's of quality. I, I love that, that last piece because I think sometimes, and I want to touch on, on a couple of things and I really like the way you segmented it. Um, the one piece about persistence personally, like I know in sales, right? I mean, there's always this battle between how much, you know, you can reach out the frequency without it looking, you know, too aggressive. But I don't know about you, Tim, but personally for me, every time, you know, someone has been persistent, I actually, some, I don't know, if, like my reaction, especially to your point, if it's of quality and, and the frequency is good and it's paced, I often like will smile. You know, if I got like the fourth or fifth email, by then I'm like, damn, man, like, I, I love that hustle, you know, screw it. Like you got me. All right, let's get on a call, you know? Um, so it you're, you're, you're differentiating yourself. I think, yeah. you know, stuff comes easy to people, man. Like we got technology that's super convenient. You know, you don't have to lift a finger as much as you did 20 years ago or whatever. Like stuff comes easy. And with this recession, like look at it. We've been in a 10-year bull market. There's low unemployment. There's there's more jobs out there than there are people. So every worker, you hit a snag or you hit some adversity in your job, you know that you can go find something for potentially more money the next day. If you graduated college in 2010, or if you didn't go to school and you went to the workforce in 2010 to now, which you're a millennial, I'm using quotes for the podcast listeners, you haven't experienced any like massive macro professional adversity Mm -hmm. before. You're not battle tested, right? So I think this is going to be a wake up call for a lot of people. You know, and it's a tough question to ask yourself because some people got, you know, are, are being furloughed and laid off if, if they're a part of a restaurant, airline, movie theater, hotel, 
you, there's nothing you can do about it. But there's some people out there are going to go like, hey, like I was the only one in my group that got that got furloughed out of a group of 20. Why was it me and not the other people? Mm-hmm. And I think you really need to dig deep and ask that question and say, what skills do I need to uh, to, to pick up on? Am I giving it a 10 out of 10 every day in my career? Am I treating my career with a certain respect? And that might not be what people want to hear mm. right now. But I can tell you from being the human capital industry, HR and CFOs and everybody, like when they do these things, they force rank people. It's a fact, right? So you have to kind of look at yourself and like, I'll go back to 10 years ago, like that experience going through that recession in a tough industry uh, changed me That's not very easy. much. My back was up against the wall. You know, I had to put the hours in. I had to fight 10 times harder for every sale that I made. And then coming out of the back end of this, it made things a lot easier. And I, I would imagine everyone's going to come out with, um, you, you know, but more respect for their craft and to be more battle tested and go through that adversity and resiliency. But, um, you know, it's stuff, stuff came easy for folks. And I think uh, this is a big wake up call for a lot of people. Yeah, it's funny, like that that comment around kind of jumping too too quick, right? Or kind of being in a position and, and before really uh, reaping the fruits, right? Like doing the best you can, being all all class or world class in that one role, so that you can step up, whether it's the same org or or a different one, but really having substance behind it. That sometimes can get lost, right? Like because it's so easy, right? Oh, I have a computer science degree, you know, I feel like I have millions of options and I know I'm going to get paid X amount. And if you don't like it, I'm going to go to Google. Like just hypothetically that example, right? You sure. hear that often. And that's the reality. For, for sure. And you'll appreciate this being a finance guy. I was a two nine round up to three Oh on my resume college student. I did yeah. not apply myself. I didn't keep, I didn't take it very seriously. I just kind of coasted through um, similar to how I'm describing, you know, a certain segment of the workforce today that hasn't experienced adversity. Mm-hmm. One of my best friends from college, Dave, gets into investment banking, private equity. I didn't even know what that was, but for whatever reason, he knew he wanted, he wanted to do when he was in high school. He kept his head down, graduated undergrad in three years, got his MBA in, in two more, so five years total. And he goes and he's at Blackstone Group now. And I was texting him, I'm talking to him, I'm a recruiter. And I'm only supposed to work 40 hours a week. People around me are working 40 hours a week, maybe 42. I talked to Dave. He's working 100 hours 100 a week. Hours. Every week. Doesn't bitch about it. Doesn't complain. 100-hour weeks. And I go, you know what? He's, he's way more successful than I am right now. If I compare myself to him and not everyone that's around me, mm. maybe do like 60 hours a week. Right. 70, you know, maybe put some time on the weekends, like really, really dial myself into this. Um, things are going to work out. And sure, sure enough, that mindset shift had me run in circles around everybody else, all the other recruiters. I got promoted faster, all the other sales reps. And I think it's, it's that mindset shift. And it's mm. what, what is your baseline? My baseline was coasting through college because I didn't have any respect for it or what that meant for my prospects out of college. Um, and it's the same thing in the workforce. And I think a lot of people are going to get woken up to that. That's so true. Especially when, like when you compare yourself to your immediate environment, right? And if you're not seeing someone stretch above and beyond, 
you know, to you, you're, you're doing exactly what you're told. And you're like, you know what, I'm giving it 100% in that sandbox. Then you look at a sandbox right next to you or across the street and you're like, damn, <laughs> you know, 100 hours. Like, even if I don't work smart, right? Let's say I'm not even efficient at first and I'm still trying to figure it out. If you put 100 hours versus 40 or 30, something is bound, bound to happen, right? In some positive way. And eventually you kind of iterate. Um, with, that, with that in mind, I'm curious now, like, you know, I, I think... Uh, and correct me if I'm long, wrong, but uh, Lucas James has been around for about two years or so, right? Um, so, so, so fairly recent. And, and in terms of that hard work, I think that that's kind of a theme around Tim, right? I see that poster behind you or that frame, I should say. Uh, that's kind of the legendary New York, um, you know, <laughs> uh, the American dream kind of vision, right? Uh, kind of working grassroots, rolling up your sleeves. What, what tenants do you have around Lucas James as a, as a you know, it's kind of paving the way in terms of uh, the, the recruiting side. What really differentiates that aspect among kind of the Midwest, the U.S. in terms of, of how you see it? Yeah, sure. I look at it. I look at it in a couple different contexts. So the the first thing is if if any of the listeners has, have ever utilized a recruiter before, not a candidate talking to a recruiter for a job, that that service is ninety nine percent of the time free to the candidate pool. But if you're a business that's engaging with a recruiter, typically you're working on a, a fee basis of 20 to 25, sometimes 30% of a candidate's first year salary Correct. as the fee, right? It's really, really expensive. Mm-hmm. You have an $80,000, you know, mid-level manager, you know, you know, maybe up and comer, 25% of that's a $20,000 fee for one person. Very expensive. Uh, the staffing and recruiting industry has been around since the 50s. This model hasn't changed since then. That's what customers are paying. And it's one of the only industries that still operates on a brokerage model. Uh, so, you know, companies don't have to pay anything up front. The contracts are such that um, if, hey, George, you have, a rec- you have an opening for an analyst, uh, you could say, hey, Tim, you, you know, work on this and I'll pay you 25% of their salary if uh, if they work out and I'm like, okay. okay. And then we go work on that for four <laughs> to six weeks, but you could have that same conversation with four other firms. Right. right. And the entire industry is set up like that. Uh, it's, it's what's called on a contingent basis. So we're, you're only going to pay on the contingency that this person is, is hired. hired. So yeah. as a result of this a very inefficient model, I did this for 10 years at a, a very large privately held company. The industry gets a bad rap. Recruiters get a bad rap. It's a very low barriers to entry industry. There's 20,000 recruiting firms in the U.S. from one one man, wow. one woman shops to the, the bigger players. Conglomerates, yeah. And there's there's a, a very very wide range between who's good, who's lazy, and so so clients just have their guard up, and the entire industry has this bad rap. So what we're doing at Lucas James Talent Partners is we're flipping that model on its head. And saying, okay, we're going to hire the best of the best senior level recruiting talent. We're going to back them up with a basically a sidekick, a candidate sourcing specialist. And instead of charging you a really high fee, you're going to basically acquire the services of our team on an hourly or weekly basis. So you're just going to pay for the work that they do. Similar to hiring, you know, a a salaried person internally, but you're going to outsource this to us. And we're going to be a world-class talent acquisition department that you can tap into on an hourly basis. And because of that, because my team is working on an hourly basis, working on and filling multiple openings, not just one for 25%, the cost per hire 
with our model ends up being drastically more cost-effective. So we aim to become 40 to 60, sometimes 70% more cost-effective than the alternative model. So that, that's the differentiator, number one. Uh, clients can flex up our uh, resourcing time or flex it down based on demand. So in kind of like a COVID situation, um, you know, not a lot of people were hiring in March, April, May. Mm-hmm. Now they're starting to kind of assess what the, what the rest of 2020 is going to look like and their needs. Now they're starting to hire again. They're tapping into us for 20 hours a week. Things pick up 40 hours a week, multiple full-time yeah. resources, but they can also scale back. And in the case of March, they didn't have to lay off their team. They could just flex our services up and down. So the, the other thing we like to differentiate ourselves with, we're in a people business. I know we both know a lot of technology founders. Uh, outside of understanding technology to go find software engineers. I don't have a technical bone in my body. It's a people business. You have to have people related processes. You have to hire people that have empathy, customer service oriented, bending over backwards for their customer and, you know, support that culture with processes that'll give the most optimal result for our clients. So uh, we've had some success over the past two years. Uh, You know, COVID came um, obviously impacted us, but I'm, I'm happy to say that we've had a sharp rebound and it has been a V-shaped recovery at Lucas James Talent Partners. And I think it's solely because of the differentiated model that we employ. Mm. Makes a lot of sense. I, I think, you know, on the, and, and it's funny how you, you, you kind of, you, you really did approach it as like an entrepreneur. You know, you, you saw, you kind of, you, well, first of all, you scan the environment, you scan the market, you saw where does the product market fit really, really work here? You know, what, what's the best value? On one hand, it's the cost aspect, obviously. On the other hand, instead of a small to medium-sized business, let's take a startup as an example. Instead of them hiring an in-house uh, recruiting firm, right, or, or bringing in three or four headcounts just for that one purpose, they can outsource it. Um, cu- curious, like, who would, on the startup lens, right? Let's take a, because I, I think a lot of founders listen to the podcast or aspiring founders or startups, when you're working with a startup, what, what does that ideal candidate look like in terms of who would actually approach or you would approach in terms of helping? Sure. So we're doing a lot in the uh, technology space. I'll say 70% of our clients are venture capital backed. So gotcha. uh, if you're in the early stage, maybe you've raised a seed round. Um, I know seed and series A, the numbers are a little bit different, but you have a small team, you raise a round of capital, you have to go hire any, any amount of people, 5, 10, 50, doesn't really matter. Your, your options are, do I either A, do the rec- full lifecycle recruiting function on my own. The venture capital firm is going to want you to focus on growing the business at that point, right? I could B, pay 20 to 25% times five people, 10 people, 50 people. You're going to burn through the cash pretty quickly doing that. You could hire somebody to do that, but that's going to take some time too, some management oversight, or you could just bundle it up and outsource it to us. You can uh, tap into my turbo team. You know, we'll come in, we'll identify the openings, uh, you know, work 40 hours, 80 hours, whatever it takes that we scope out, fill those openings for you, scale it back down and kind of go away. So we, we've supported companies that, you know, from seed stage to A to B to C. And then in a lot of cases, we'll help them build out their people team and then supplement from there. So it doesn't really matter what stage that you're at, but uh, we work a lot with those uh, startups because they want to stay nimble. They want to keep costs down and they, they need flexibility. And that's what the model uh, lends to. And what, what, like, what are you seeing in terms of opportunities right now from, from, I know we, in the beginning of the podcast, we talked more so about kind of the, the hardships that, that COVID has presented. I know from, from the public market side, at least in Canada, we're seeing a ton of traction in mining, 
gold obviously being one of them, so is silver. But even on the tech side, right? Telehealth, digital health, esports, e-learning, seeing a lot of pockets of growth, uh, even within those, uh, you know, those challenging windows of, of COVID. So curious from your aspect, from a talent perspective, one, what kind of roles are you seeing really pick up? Two, what kind of verticals within startups, maybe within tech, uh, you're seeing as well? I'll start with the roles first. Um, there was definitely a deep recession in a lot of the skill sets that a standard technology company employs. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, anything under the CTO realm, the software engineers, front end, back end, full stack, data roles, there's, there's no recession there. They know they got to keep that talent. They're going to get through it, assuming they didn't kind of get caught in the fundraising cycle where they mm-hmm. had to make make layoffs. But uh, there's a lot of hiring that's still going on there, for sure. Now, in terms of vertical, um, you just think of really any company that saw some tailwinds uh, from this. So we have a company that um, focuses 100% on e-learning and supporting teachers with e-learning which was, you know, 1% of all teachers prior to this. Now it's the majority of teachers are doing some sort of curriculum on e-learning. So we're supporting them through that growth. They're, they're growing very rapidly. I mean, we have a client that manufactures hospital beds and ventilator equipment. Pharmaceutical nice. companies are doing really well. Technology companies that are supporting medical, that are supporting maybe not food service, but food production uh, or e-commerce is picking up quite a bit. And really in the tech space, regardless of the industry or the vertical, what I thought was interesting is where you were caught on the fundraising cycle when Mm -hmm. COVID hit impacted what 2020 looked like for you. So for example, we had clients that just locked up their round in February. So they had plans to hire 50 people. Now those plans changed from 50 to maybe 25 to be a little bit more conscious of like, hey, where is this going? But they still needed to go, regardless of the industry. Uh, You have other companies that were on this growth cycle that were in the middle of fundraising that got delayed and that really messed up their plans for 2020. So I I think the the fundraising cycle, if if that's where you're getting your capital from for growth, really impacted a lot of companies this year. And, and do, you, do you often have conversations with uh, either the CEO or the co-founding team about what roles really make sense? Like, I know you were talking about that turbo team. I, 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 I think I stumbled on an article once that talked about, um, you know, the VP of sales or VP of marketing being a very crucial hire, right? As I'm sure you know. Uh, but it's often difficult too, because sometimes you look at a VP of sales as an example, just taking this, you know, as a hypothetical. So mm-hmm. all the VP of sales, don't judge me. All right, we still have some love for you. Um, but you know, let, let's say you're looking at a, at a candidate and they have big corp experience, right? They come from Salesforce, they come from Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever. And now they're going to a smaller startup. Sometimes that transition is, is actually more difficult. I had that conversation with Godard actually uh, from some of the previous ventures he's, he's, uh, he's been through. So curious from your perspective, when you do have those conversations, what are you telling CEOs in terms of which hires to go with? It depends on how everyone's situation. If you're in a position where you can invest, I would invest now. So yeah, in, invest from a capital perspective, but you know, invest in people. Because right. the, the reality is this is going to turn around. A vaccine is going to happen at some point, or we're going we're gonna to have to just learn how to work around this and business is going to have to continue. So if you're in a capital position to invest, I would start looking for those key hires 
right now because it's never a better time than right now to look for some of those tougher to fill skill sets. You mentioned management. I think some of those like unique niche software engineering skill sets, people are open a little bit more than they were before, depending on their current company situation. So I think, you know, if you're in a capital position to invest, I would start looking right now for some of those management level people uh, that can really catapult your business to the next level. Those engineers, those like high level salespeople, because the reality is if you start today, it's going to take you two, three, four months management, six months. If you're like, really holding integrity with the process. And then it's going to take another three, six months to get them up and running. And we're probably just going to be in a different situation nine months down the road. And I think if you're forward thinking and you can emotionally and objectively look at your business in a three-year context versus a three-month, um, I, w- I would make those investments. And frankly, that's that's what we're doing. Even though it's a tough environment for recruiting, we are in a position, thankfully, to invest. I believe in the model. And I know if we can get the right people on the bus now, 2021, 2022, 2023, you're going to look a lot better. In terms of also looking a lot better, keeping on that theme, you know, candidates are trying to look a lot better virtually, right? And not every, I mean, some people are comfortable in front of the camera. Some people are, are not, admittedly so. Um, in that case, like, I know, I know, you know, one of the questions we often get on the investment side, like even with, with our roadshows, right? When we're introducing companies to, to investment bankers, um, a lot of that is virtual now. Right. And there's always often this debate, like, is it effective? Is it not? Some banks love it. Some don't. And they're being more conservative. Are you seeing that as, as a bit of a hurdle in terms of that last like person to person touch? Because on, on virtual, you can get a sense of of me as a person. Right. Like you, you can legitimize me. You, you we can go through the profile. You make sure everything's legit. But it, it's still not person to person physical contact. Right. Is that still a hurdle? And if so, how do you navigate across that? I think it's for sure a hurdle. I think this whole thing is going to force us as a society to fast forward our tactics around getting more trust developed in a virtual setting. Because I think that's kind of what you're talking about is, you know, from at least from the the candidate kind of client or hiring manager perspective, you know, am I getting a, a, a trustworthy enough read on this individual that what they're telling me that's coming into my headset <laughs> over zoom is true uh, based on what I'm asking them. And I think you just, you just know how to do that in person because all of our interactions with other humans have been in person since we've been born. Right. So now you fast forward, everybody's using these virtual tools. We only have five and a half months doing this. So I think, you know, some companies are uh, embracing it a little bit more than others. Some are uh, maybe not comfortable making those decisions just yet. But I think, I think this is going to be the new norm moving forward. And mm-hmm. I think um, there's going to be more articles. There's going to be more studies. There's going to be more um, direction given to uh, how candidates should show up in a, in a virtual setting and then how to interview candidates in a virtual setting or do business deals and so on and so forth. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And it's also true, like back to your point around runway, right? When, when startups are, are raising that cap, do you find it sometimes difficult or, or, or having that conversation with them about why hiring is also important? Like it's often easy to say that, you know, and, and, and in most of the conversations I have with companies, it's either that they're hiring sales and marketing, they're, you know, they're putting money towards dev, 
or they're trying to launch products or, or services across different cities. Those are kind of the, the main themes I often hear. But once you, you go and put kind of pen to paper or dollars to, to, to your, your, your mouth, uh, so to speak, it, it's a bit different, right? And, and to, to that commitment, I think it's, it's a bit more challenging. Um, so curious, like what resonates most when, when you're talking to, let's call it a 50-person tech startup in the Midwest. What resonates most when you're sitting in front of the co-founder and, and really mapping out their, their recruiting strategy? Well, I think um, I'm the type of person that looks th- three years out, five years out and say, where do I want to be at year three or year five, whatever it is? What's my goal? And then analyze that. Is that realistic? Is that objective? Right. And then once I have that, reverse engineer that back. And every decision that I make day in and day out is based off that three or five-year goal in mind. And for any company, hiring goes into that, right? If I need to be at 20 salespeople five years from now, I can't hire all 20 in year five when I'm emotionally comfortable with it. But I have to make decisions today and say, based on a risk reward and what the, the data points that I have around COVID and how the market's uh, reacting to COVID, can I make one of those hires now and make those hires? So I like to take a very objective approach from a business context and look at all the different variables. What's the goal? Where are we looking to go? What's our current state financially when we model this out and we budget it out? Can we make this move without putting the business at a certain risk? And then if so, we need to start looking for that person. And if you're doing the recruiting process right, it's going to take more time than a couple phone calls, run into someone that you think is okay, and then hire them. Yeah. Because you're going to run your business into the ground, uh, not treating the recruiting process with respect. Hmm. Makes a lot of sense. And, and I guess before transitioning to the, to the personal side, I want people to kind of get a better sense of, of Tim. And kind of the you know the daily routine and and you as an entrepreneur as well because I know you do a lot of investing personally and, and other things outside of uh, of Lucas James. But the last question and this is something out of curiosity, honestly, it's a, it's kind of a personal curiosity. You often see, and I think you alluded to this earlier in the conversation, but you know a, a role will come out right. It's on LinkedIn, it's on Indeed, it's on all the like Monster Doc, Monster Jobs, whatever the, the platform is. That one company gets thousands of of um, you know of applications. And there's often this debate, or sometimes they actually might pull the application because they just got flooded with really bad applications that weren't vetted, right? Um, are, you, are you seeing, and, and even more so now with LinkedIn, like there's that ease apply or easy apply, whatever it's called. So it, it's, and again, to your point, how easy it's, it's become, right? But it makes it more challenging on, on the company's end to really filter through. Do you guys ever take that approach or is it always kind of word of mouth, your network, kind of a personalized approach and targeted in terms of who you think would be a good candidate? Um, so we've split up the full life cycle recruiting role. Typically, a company or a recruiting firm has a recruiter. Mm-hmm. They're looking at applicants. They're, they're, they're sourcing in some cases. They're doing the interviews. They're working with the hiring managers. It's just one person. We've split that up into two kind of specialized roles. Right. So we have the sourcing specialist And this person is going out on LinkedIn, internal, external databases, and really trying to find exactly what the hiring manager is looking for and taking a push approach versus a pull approach, which is the job, the job boards and saying, here's this startup, here's this hundred person, 200 person company that you maybe never heard of. Here's why they're awesome. Here's why I think you're awesome. Let's have a conversation. And we think that's what make, makes matches more. 
sometimes we fill positions off job boards or companies will fill positions off job boards. But yeah, I think it's word of mouth networking, as I alluded to before. And then, you know, our strategy, I'm not giving any away any trade secrets that that push approach and kind of building up a Canada pool of folks that based on what the resume looks like, or their LinkedIn profile are going to be good fits to eventually get to that perfect fit for the, the client. Gotcha. Makes a lot of sense, Ben. Um, and then in terms of you as kind of the entrepreneur, right? Like, uh, again, two years in, um, first of all, how does it feel to, to run, to run this? And there's also a bit of a legacy component. I know Lucas James are the individuals, uh, names of, of both of your sons, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Is that right? Um, and, and who's, who's older? Is it Lucas? So Lucas is my five-year-old. James is my three-year-old. Um, I have an office set up in the basement. I can hear them right now. Maybe the podcast listeners can, can hear them. They're bouncing off the walls. Um, but yeah, th- those are my sons. And then pro- shout, yeah. out. Sh- shout out Lucas and James, uh, <laughs> you know, I'll look forward to them listening to this one day. Um, but prior to starting the business two years ago, I, you know, I've been in the recruiting and staffing space, like I said, at a big company, started off recruiting outside sales rep, uh, very fortunate. And it was through hard work and research and other things coming out of the last recession. I became the top sales rep for three years running at this very large company out of 2000 reps. And that experience really kind of catapulted me through exposure to leadership and then other career opportunities to get into a high level national sales role, and then eventually to run majority of our Chicagoland operation. So I I got that leadership experience. I got Mm. that sales experience. I saw every little facet of the recruiting and staffing industry. And I said, there's, there's a better way to do this. This, this is burning out myself, my team. It's burning out the clients. This model is giving a bad rap to the entire industry. So uh, I left uh, actually when Lucas was born, kind of made the life decision to say, I either have to mentally be okay with being a lifer at this company, or I got to take the plunge. Life is too short. So I left. Unfortunately, I had a two and a half year non-compete in the recruiting business. So I couldn't start the business right away. And, and that's when I started, uh, diving into the tech community. I I was doing angel investing. I was advising and consulting companies uh, at the early seed series A stage around sales and marketing strategies, mentorship time in 1871 here in Chicago that I'm sure uh, you and some of the Chicago listeners know about and just really built up my network here in Chicago. And then through that really came up with a model for what ultimately Lucas James does today, which I mentioned before. So we started the business two years ago. A lot of my early clients were some of my, uh, some of that network that I had built up over those two years. And then, um, yeah, two years went by pretty quick. It went by very quick. And at the same time, it felt like a really, 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 really long time. And there was a lot of challenges. There was a lot of ups and downs through that. We're, we're probably talking today at chapter two of a 10 to 15, 20 chapter story of Lucas James Talent Partners, but um, I'm enjoying absolutely every minute of this, even even the tough times. Um, it's awesome to see my team step up when our backs were up against the wall and really kind of fight through it. We're not out of the woods yet, but really kind of come out of this thing strong um, with prospects moving forward. So it's been, it's been an incredible journey with a lot of ups and downs, and uh, I'm just looking forward to the future with the team. Yeah. I mean, so, so many good pieces there, man. Um, I'm just trying to like categorize them all for myself even, but, um, and, and maybe two questions on, on the two years that have gone by this quick, what, what probably was, was the biggest turning point in terms of like that, that big win that really gave you that, 
you know, a bit of a sigh, you know, that like that, that deep breath that you get as an entrepreneur that, okay, I, I think this is going to work with a bit more confidence than, you know, I first started with. And then two, what has been probably the most challenging? Uh, and if it's COVID, maybe aside from that. Okay. Understood. Yeah. The, I think the big wins were, you know, when you go from it just being you mm. to, uh, which is very lonely <laughs> in a lot of senses to adding team members to take that journey with you. Um, and it not feel like you're doing it alone and everyone is locking arms towards a greater good purpose and strategy. Th- that was the best realization that, uh, th- this isn't going to be a lonely journey. This isn't just about me anymore. Like we're, we're a team, we're going to add new team members. We're building something together. And I think, um, you know, financially for an entrepreneur to make that jump and say, Hey, I'm going to go invest in like one or two or three or four or five more people to do this with me. It's pretty scary. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you better have the pipeline for it. You either better have raised some cash for it. Um, but, th- but that was really scary. And once I did that and I realized, Hey, we can do more together than, than just me. I think that's where, you know, the, the strategy around scale and growth and invest in a sales organization really early in this thing really, really kind of took, uh, took form. Um, on the flip side, I think the biggest challenges are when it is small, you're juggling a lot of priorities, right? There's, there's so many aspects to being an entrepreneur. Uh, you, you have to know sales, you have to know, know product. You have to know in the my case, every service business, customer, yeah, customer service and delivery finance and accounting and marketing and like all this stuff. Right. And you can read about it, but the biggest challenge I think for me was, you know, I would be on the sales end for too long and then the delivery would suffer. And then I would try to tighten up delivery and then the pipeline suffered. This is back Mm -hmm. when it was just me. And then, you know, really when I realized that we're just going to get there faster, if I invest in a team, so someone that's better than me at sales and someone that's better than me on the delivery side. And I think that's when things really started to click. So I think, you know, we raised some capital last year, nice. uh, small amount, you know, 10% of the business or so, but I, from individuals that have done this before. Mm-hmm. So I have three advisors and mentors now that have been here before that I could tap into that are in my corner. And it was the best decision I've ever made because not only is it less lonely, they're pointing me in the right direction on all these different facets. And I don't feel like I'm doing it on my own. And it's, it's all coming together at the same spot. And yeah, COVID sucks, but um, it's going to be an even better story year five, year 10 down the road um, when we have a bigger team. And, you know, we're, we're talking about uh, some of the glory days of 2020. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, to, to wrap this up, because um, it honestly has been a great conversation, man. Um, I was also reading a Medium article. Uh, I'll send it to you, by the way. It's really interesting. This guy did uh, research on every unicorn uh, or startup that, that started after 2005 up until now in the States that reached that billion dollar plus valuation and basically anecdotes on the founders, on the company, et cetera. One of the things was uh, founders typically had like 10 years of experience before starting. Um, so that kind of average age was actually around like late twenties to early forties. So hopefully, you know, uh, LJTP could, uh, could hit that unicorn status soon in a non-tech lens. But, uh, with that being said, from the, from the experience you got in the corporate world, being, you know, the top rep as an example for, for a number of times, 
what's the one thing that, that sets you apart then and that you still carry leading Lucas James today? I, honestly, I, I, I love hearing the stories of folks dropping out of college and <clears throat> becoming a unicorn, you know, one day, I think that's, that's awesome. Uh, I owe any win or success that we've had to my corporate career pr- prior wow. to this. Um, I know how to sell. I know how to read customers. I've managed between, you know, one and 80 people before. That's a different skill set between maybe managing one person and managing 80. So I've, I've learned a lot of those lessons. There's, there's a lot of, Hey, how does Tim show up in a group setting? How does Tim show up in a one-on-one setting? How does Tim get the most out of people? Like these are skills that you need, or you at least need to hire someone that has in order to get things off the ground. You, you can't be a mediocre manager and expect mm-hmm. to scale something. You can't right. be mediocre on sales and marketing and expect to scale something. You can acquire those. There's other ways to do it. But it, for me personally, in a service, primarily a service business, we got some tech enabled stuff, but primarily a service business, all that experience gave me the confidence to make this plunge. And I think if I had done it prior to, you know, picking up a lot of this, these tidbits that I've, I've learned, I, I don't know if I would have had the foresight to push through and stick it out because I went through some adversity and I, I saw how you can get, get through adversity and showed resiliency that when it happens, when it's bound to happen as an entrepreneur, I, I can emotionally get through it and stay objective. If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. I'll see you next time.